Well, welcome to Sunday School class. If you're out in the foyer, it would be a good time for you to get into BTI or the sanctuary for our study on theology of material possessions or up in, uh, what do we got, Fundamentals of the Faith class or, let's see one. You want the pulpit mic? Oh, turn it off. Which do you want? You want me to use that one? 10-4. Let's see, also you can be teaching Sunday school classes. There's many options this morning for you guys, so good, uh, good morning. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Lord, it is from you that uh, we receive all things. Uh, we are thankful to you for that, that there is nothing that exists without you and nothing we have without you. And <clears throat> Relationships, friends, clothing, homes, food, shelter, um, all these things we know are from you and, and they are yours. This earth is yours. May it be that we learn how to use what we have for your glory so that your name gets great praise and others know about you. Others want to know you more and they want to be pursuing you and giving you glory. That is our ultimate goal, to increase the numbers that are giving glory to you. And use this morning for that purpose, however you may. In your name, amen. Well, for about six weeks now, we have been going looking at the theology of material possessions, and we want to shift more into a, a look at the potential results of proper biblical thinking on this subject. As with all areas of our lives, we're, if we're obedient in specific areas of our lives, we'll see tangible results. There's a cause and effect principle here. When we sin, we see specific results from our sin, and when we're obedient, we see other specific results that are different. So today we're going to look at our use of money and the specific results of reaching others with the gospel as a part of that. Of course, we need to start with the obvious observation that part of what we give to the church goes towards mission agencies. It goes towards spreading the gospel so that your giving does have a result in, in gospel work. I remember thinking of this concept when I was very young, young little kid, and uh, giving money specifically. We had some missionaries come into town, and I, I wanted the gospel to go out. And, and so I remember giving to that specific purpose uh, after hearing testimony from one of them at church. I thought maybe in heaven someday I will meet somebody who came to saving knowledge of Christ because of those missionaries going out, because they had enough funds, because I assisted them, that there was a cause and effect there. Of course, we also see myriads and myriads of parachurch organizations that are out there looking to feed children, to dig wells in Africa, to assist in tsunami victims, uh, all those kind of things. As I was studying for this lesson, up on Bible Gateway popped up an advertisement for a child's face suggesting that I support through uh, Compassion International, support some child to, uh, to live and to get food. Um, there's endless ways that we can give to help other human beings. But how do we think through the biblical patterns for reaching others with the gospel through our giving? This morning, we're going to look at 12 passages and 12 principles that should guide us in this process. We're going to go through them real quick because you're going to spend some time talking about these in your small groups instead. <clears throat> These principles appear to be supported throughout Scripture, not as doctrine, but as statements that we cannot find any Scriptures that would negate what they say. And uh, as we share them, you may be thinking of other passages that, well, yeah, that, that makes sense. That matches with this verse I'm thinking of. So you'll, you'll see some of that throughout this. 
We only have a limited amount of time this morning, as we have for the last seven weeks. So let's get right into these passages that tell us truths about reaching others with the gospel. Number one, any time in Scripture where we see Christians use, and these are going to be hard to write down, so you may not want to. I can give them to you afterwards. Any time in Scripture where we see Christians use their material possessions in harmony with the will of God, it encourages people to believe in Jesus Christ. Anytime we see it, there's always, when there's a, a material possessions are involved, it's in harmony with the will of God that it encourages others to believe in Christ. Acts 2, 44 through 47. Let me read this. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And listen, and the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. Part of that was that sharing with each other. And is this not the directive that Christ left us in Matthew 28 when he left us here on earth, making disciples of all nations? Jesus had told the disciples in John 13, 35, By this will all people know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. And this is the way we can show our love for one another is by the way that we give and care for each other. Others will will want to be loved in a similar way. One of these ways is the ways we support each other through needs that we have financially. You see the email this week about the benevolence that was given to the couple that was needy in our, our church regarding um, some financial needs with, uh, with medical bills. I mean, that was just phenomenal. Over $10,000, just under, I think, $10,000 was given to support that family. That's, that was crazy. That's amidst what we're going through with this, our, our campaign right now for gen- joyful generosity. That sends a very clear signal to the world. My goodness, the church is totally different than any other organization. That phenomenally sends a message. So our sacrificial, unselfish benevolence draws others to Christ. Number two, having a lot of material things often makes it difficult for people to recognize and acknowledge their need for salvation. The materialism keeps them from that. Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, it's often the poor financially that are the ones that are poor in spirit. James chapter 5 makes this clear. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are come upon you. Your riches have rotten, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I think it's universally recognized, that in our, especially in our Western society, that we become more and more reliant on our wealth. We don't need anyone else when we have wealth. We don't need a savior because we're independent. We can do it all on our own. That's the way mankind is driven. And we know that being rich does not exclude uh, you from the gospel. We have some examples in scripture. Zacchaeus seemed to have a lot of money. Lydia, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, and Cornelius, they're all proof that there were people who have good financial means, at least in the New Testament. 
But as a general principle, having a lot of material things often makes it difficult for people to recognize their need for a Savior. They're dependent upon their own materialism to be able to take care of themselves. So having a lot of material things makes it difficult to recognize their need. Number three, Christians should not only give to those to give to those to love them and care for them, but even to those who may resent them and even try to harm them. Think about that. There are those who want to harm you, and yet they have needs, and we're supposed to give to them? Matthew 5, 42, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was not teaching that we should allow people to manipulate us and take advantage of us. That would only contribute to their irresponsibility. We're going to see in a moment the Bible is clear about requiring us to work, and those who are able to work should work. While we want to balance this, though, we must consider supporting those within our path who are truly in need, even if it comes to our enemies. That is not a normal worldly way to think. This is part of turning your other cheek, going two miles when you're asked to go one, giving of your cloak to others, etc. Fourth principle, God is sometimes more patient with uninformed people who are materialistic than he is with people who have more direct exposure to the truth. Acts 8, verse 9 through 25, rather lengthy passage, but I I want to read this because it does kind of talk about this. Look at this perspective. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magician magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is, uh, is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also that, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot of this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you've said may come to me. Now when they testified and spoke in the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So they went out from there. Well, compare this to the way that Peter had dealt with Ananias and Sapphira, just not too much before that. Ananias and Sapphira came to the church, and they gave a large sum of money, but they gave it with a wrong heart, Right? They had a much deeper knowledge of Christ. Thus, they were dealt with in a much more severe manner. It cost their life for their fraud of their money, what they were doing there. The difference seems to be related to the amount of knowledge they had regarding the will of God. Luke twelve forty eight says, 
Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Look at Jonah, chapter 4, verse 11, where Jonah was upset that God was saving Nineveh. Why are you doing this? Why should not I pity Nineveh? What a great city, God says, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left and also much cattle. These people were just completely ignorant. Why shouldn't I save them? Why shouldn't I do something to bring them to knowledge of me? They didn't have much knowledge and God had compassion on them as opposed to those who had a lot. Ananias and Sapphira, we believe. God is sometimes more patient with uninformed people who are materialistic than he is with people who have more direct exposure to the truth. Number five, though it is often difficult for wealthy people to respond to the gospel, it is God's will that we reach these people, for they can influence great segments of humanity with both their social position and their material success. I sort of bristled when I first read this principle. I said, you crazy? That sounds, you know, like, wow. Well, we know the story of Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts 8, 26 through 40. This guy was in charge of the treasury of Candace, the queen. He was a wealthy man in charge of a lot of money. Of all the events recorded in Acts, this was included in part of Scripture. Why? Why would you take a guy that's from down in the Egypt area? Philip the apostle is prompted by God to go to a specific desert road, hitch a ride with this eunuch who's returning to Africa, and he shares with him from the book of Isaiah who Christ was, how he fulfilled the prophecies And the eunuch gets saved, he's baptized, and then Philip, boom, he's gone, gets transported off to another city. Well, undoubtedly, this eunuch had a lot of influence over the court of Candace where he was employed. Who knows how he would have taken the gospel, planted seeds down where he was because of his influence. Others in that whole region had not likely heard the gospel yet, and he was now going to be in a position that people would listen to him. Look at also at Priscilla and Aquila. They undoubtedly had wealth. They were used uh, to help establish the church in Corinth to undergird Paul's work because of their business. They had put their resources to kingdom work. They eventually set up what became a missionary center, expanding the gospel to the then known world. They used their finances for that because they had much. Look also, uh, I'm sorry, God doesn't need their wealth, but God does use human instruments to accomplish his work. It is a true axiom. If you have more wealth, you have a greater probability of influencing a greater amount of people. That's just a natural fact. So when people who are given the gospel, who have a lot of wealth, a lot of influence, and they get saved, there is a greater field that they can reach. Number six, Christians who are unselfish and benevolent become a unique verification to non-Christians that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. This is something we see regularly in Scripture. What else can change a hard heart that normally thinks selfish? I want the new Ferrari. I just passed a Ferrari on the way to work this morning. I said, man, that's a nice car. You know what? I didn't think anything beyond that. I just said it was a nice car. We have a different heart, a different purpose to what we're doing. God never intended for people to hear the gospel out of the context of some type of an evidence that the message is real in us. It's true. And that has to do with our finances. What do we do with our finances? The selfless act of sharing material possession with those in need is the greatest visible form of the salvation message we can exhibit. What else 
can in our lives shows that a changed life one of the easiest way for people to see what's in our heart is how we deal with our money after that we're naturally selfish people but god's love in us for others breaks that barrier and it can open up gospel opportunities for us acts 9 36 to 42 now there was in joppa a disciple named tabitha which translated means dorcas she was full of good works and acts of charity In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her and laid her in an upper room, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, he took them to the upper room. All the the widows stood behind him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed." And turned to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Well, Dorcas was a living testimony to her community because of her benevolence. She kept making tunics and blankets and all kinds of things for people. That last sentence is proof. These neighbors all knew her because of her generosity. That set the stage for her resurrection to be a proclamation of her faith in Christ. If she would have been a lazy, bitter old woman who would have passed away, nobody would have cared about her death. But because she had invested in so many people's lives, her uh, death and then resurrection and her knowledge of, of Christ was a greater, much greater testimony. Her benevolence opened the door for the gospel. Number seven, Christians should work hard to provide for their economic needs so that they are not criticized by unbelievers for being lazy and irresponsible. How sad it is when Christians are dragged down the name of Christ because of their laziness. I do believe there are true cases of poverty that do require financial subsidy, but that should be the extreme exception. A young mother with four children whose husband has left her, that is something where the church needs to come alongside and help her. Her husband's run out on her. She can't support herself. There should, should be a safety net for her. But a strong man in his 50s or 60s who's able to work but he's not willing, he can't prioritize his life to get out of bed in the morning, he doesn't want to take a menial job that will at least put food on his table, that is not an acceptable position for a believer in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12 is quite clear. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That's pretty clear. Don't defame our Lord by being a poor testimony of the grace of God. Work hard so you're not a burden on others. Number eight. Non-Christians who put their faith in material possessions and who abuse and misuse other people in order to accumulate wealth must be warned that they will eventually be judged severely by God. James chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are come upon you. Your riches have rotten and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you, will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. While every rich non-Christian is not out to exploit others, we live in extremely affluent society compared to most other nations. All people with wealth will be accountable to God for what they did with it. Remember, God owns it all. We need to share with them that there will be a judgment day for them. That's a reality. Number nine, Christians should separate themselves from Christians who are persistently irresponsible and not providing for their own economic needs. 2 Thessalonians 3.16, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you received from us. That word traditions here is the teachings of the apostles directly to them. Idleness, as the King James translated, is disorderly. But in the next few verses, Paul talks about not being a financial burden to the church in Thessalonica. So while the idleness is a lack of application of the teachings that they've heard, it's also, in a practical sense, physical idleness as well, not working. They're just not working. Paul is going so far to state here that church discipline be exercised on Christians who will not work. Boy, that's a tough one. This does not apply to Christians who want to work but cannot, but rather those who can and will not. If we know someone in this category, it's our duty to call them to repentance, not only that they should not be a burden to the church, but as a poor example to the world that Christians claim to be. Number 10, Christians who put their lives, who put God first in their lives may open the door for people to take material advantage of them. Heads up, people are going to take advantage of us. Philemon 18, the entire book of Philemon demonstrates this. Paul is writing to Philemon to challenge him to forgive one of his former slaves, Onesimus, who had ran off. Paul is telling Philemon to put Onesimus' charge to Paul's account. But he reminds Philemon of the debt that he owes Paul for bringing him to a saving knowledge of the gospel. An incalculable, excuse me, incalculable price. But think of many other times that Jesus did miracles. That he healed the sick, the blind, the lame. He fed thousands. But then he... T- He told them of the cost of following him, and what happened? They abandoned him. They left him. They weren't willing to take, they were willing to take what they could from him, but when it got hard, they left. They walked away. There's a huge risk in giving to others, even within the church. While we should not let people take advantage of us, we should never allow fickleness and manipulation to keep us from loving people and using our material possessions to help others. God always wants us to use discretion, but to always also be generous. Number 11, Christians may face criticism or even retaliation when their commitment to do God's will conflicts with others' materialistic value system. Acts 19, 23 to 41. Look what happened to Paul when he was preaching in Ephesus. The silversmiths were losing business from the lack of selling idols because Paul was preaching Christ. The union bosses got together, and they started a riot. In many towns, Paul and his cohorts, they got run out of town. In modern-day sense, that could be a baker not willing to make a cake for a couple who are gay or a gay wedding. It violates his conscience. There may be a financial repercussion to doing this. Years ago, I remember 
having a situation like this. Um, when a client, a, a potential client, saw one of the documents within our company, is our purpose statement. It says the purpose of this business is to glorify Jesus Christ through the day, way we do business. They saw that, and they were deeply offended. And they called, and they said, we refuse to do business with you. In fact, they threatened to take me to some state business practices. Well, all I could do is give a gentle response to them, and, you know, great, go ahead. I, I understand that's where you're at, but that's, this is what we believe. I'm sorry. I was willing to lose business. I'm probably really glad I didn't work for that person because they were probably a lot harder to work with in other areas. But it was because of the convictions that we were clear about as a company. Number 12, lastly, Christian employees should work hard to serve their employers as if they are actually serving Christ himself. And Christian employers should always treat their employees fairly in every respect. This is a reaching others with the gospel issue. How sad when employees or employ I'm sorry, when employers claim they love Christ and then treat their employees like trash. How sad when employees claim to be Christians and then take advantage of their employer. I've hired hundreds and hundreds of employees, and I can testify that many Christians that I've hired have made it difficult for me to explain to non-Christians that poor employee practices by proclaiming Christians are not godly examples. I've had them do that. I've had one employee who tried stopping another employee while he was working because the night before he had a vision from God that he was supposed to share the gospel with this guy. And he said, stop what you're doing. I need to talk to you about this. And the other employee who's not a Christian is saying, hey, I've got a job to do. I need to work here. You can talk to me afterwards, but not right now. And the guy insisted, no, 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 I got to tell you now. God told me I got to talk to you. What a poor example that is of a Christian. The non-Christian employees um, was the wise one telling him it's not the right timing. That is a poor testimony, not providing an honest day's work to your employer. Colossians three twenty-two through 4, 1 covers this principle. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Scripture is really clear, really practical on these things, isn't it? These are our roles as employers and as employees. Well, there's 12 principles, 12 verses, or passages, that talk about how to handle our finances and our ability to earn them. That has a very direct impact on the gospel, not just what we do with our money. That's a, that's a whole other thing, how we can fund gospel work. And I, I read a lot of stories this week about guys who use their money to support people like William Tyndale and others that are behind the scenes, people we didn't know, and, and they were the catalyst, the, the, the cash flow to allow things to happen. What amazing things have occurred because people were sacrificial in those ways. I don't think any of these principles are much of a surprise to you, but we need to remind ourselves over and over that every portion of our lives is a living testimony of the gospel and needs to be brought into full conformity of Scripture. The way we give, the way we handle our finances, the way we work and earn money, all of it is an example that is a gospel message to the world around us. With that, we're going to break into small groups, and we're going to change them up a little bit because we don't have as many leaders as we used to. So I've got Gabe 
And then, uh, Jason, I'm going to have you move back a little bit, and you're going to take a group there. I think we're going to get about five groups out. I've got Jim in the back there, so that's three. I've got, uh, where's my other leaders here? Bart here is four, and I've got number five will be in that group. I'll, I'll have another one back in that corner. I'll bring you a leader. So split into five groups, approximately eight, ten people, and I will be handing out questions to those people in just a minute. Thank you, guys. <laughs>